For purposes of introduction, I want to uh, reiterate to you a piece that was written by Portia Nelson uh, entitled Autobiography in Five Short Chapters. And this is how it's re- it reads. Chapter 1. I walk down the street. There is a deep hole in the sidewalk. I fall in. I'm lost. I'm helpless. It isn't my fault, and it takes forever to get out. Chapter 2. I walk down the same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I pretend I don't see it. I fall in again. I can't believe I'm in the same place, but it isn't my fault. It still takes me a long time to get out. Chapter 3. I walk down the same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I see it is there. I still fall in. It's a habit. My eyes are wide open. I know where I am. It is my fault. I get out immediately. Chapter 4. I walk down the same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I walk around it. Chapter 5. I walk down a different street. (laughs) Reading that reminds me of a scene in the movie Groundhog Day in which Phil, Bill Murray, finding himself trapped in this time warp, doomed to relive an endless recycling of the same day until he gets it right, steps off a curb in a pothole that is filled with icy slush and water, soaking his foot completely. And he does this over and over and over again until he finally wises up enough to avoid it one day. See, Nelson's prose also sounds like a very practical commentary of James chapter 1, verses 13 through 18. If you'd like to turn there, if you're not already there, I want to refresh your memory about what we're studying this week and what we began last week. Beginning in verse 13, James chapter 1, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. Now, as we discovered last week, in the realm of temptations, James says there's a principle we all need to learn if we're going to exhibit some wisdom here. And that is, we resist temptations by recognizing the truth. And here are some clear truths that we uncovered last time. And the sooner we master them, the better off we're going to be. So in order to give you context, if you haven't been here, if you weren't here last week for verses 17 and 18, which we're going to look at, I want to go back and kind of review the first couple of verses here. So... Here are the truths we uncovered. Number one, we need to recognize the source from which the temptations originate. That's in verses 13 and 14. The source of sin, we said, is always self. 
The fact of the matter is that deep down within our hearts, however, we ultimately want to blame God, don't we? We saw that last time. But James says, let no man say that when he's tempted, that he's being tempted of God. In other words, he's saying, stop blaming God for your failure. Why? Because we're not acknowledging really the real source of our temptations. Number one, God is not the source, verse 13 says. God, and he gives two good reasons why. The two good reasons are that he cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone to commit evil. Every trial brings the possibility of a temptation. Remember we talked about that last week? And under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, James shows us that the temptations themselves rise up from within us. They are not the tool or the desire of our Father. Now, last week, a few of you may have quickly thought of a few places in Scripture which seemingly contradicts what James is saying here in these two things. When he says in verse 13, God cannot be tempted by evil. Okay, so we've got that. But he himself does not tempt anyone. A few of you may be thinking, well, wait a second now. I can think of a few scriptures that say something that lead me to believe otherwise. For example, Matthew chapter 4. Why don't you turn there? Hold your finger in James 1. Turn over to Matthew chapter 4. And we read these interesting words in verse 1. Matthew 4, verse 1, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit in the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Wait a second, you just told me that God doesn't do that. Notice here that he's led by the Spirit to be tempted, but note it was not God that did the tempting. Who was it? The devil was doing the tempting, not God. Verse 3 points out that as well. The tempter came to him and said to him, if you are the son of God, command that these stones become bread and on and so forth. Mark and Luke's account kind of shed a little bit of light on this, actually, in the way that it's worded. In Mark chapter 1, in verses 12 and 13, we read these words. Immediately the Spirit impelled him to go out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild beasts and the angels were ministering to him. Notice that. It was, again, the devil who did the tempting, but the Spirit was leading Jesus and the angels were ministering to Jesus. You get that? Turn over now to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4 and verse 1 says, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led around, how? By the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by who? The devil. And he ate nothing and he was fasting and then the devil came to him, on, so on. And then in verse 13, it says, when the devil had finished every temptation, he left him until an opportune time. Notice verse 14. And Jesus returned to Galilee in the power 
of the Spirit. I want you to notice the two bookends here on this, uh, from verses 1 to 14, that it says in verse 1 that Jesus began the test full of the Holy Spirit, and he ended the test in the power of the Holy Spirit. So clearly, the Holy Spirit was accompanying him and leading him, providing the way of escape throughout the devil's attempt to seduce him into sin, and it wasn't God that was doing that or leading him into it. It was the devil. God was providing the way of escape, as it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 13. It says this, No temptation has overtaken you but such as common to man, and God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with the temptation will also provide the way of escape also so that you may be able to endure it. Do you know that the same grace is available to you and to me every time we face a temptation? Did you know that? So, Why is it that we get so fouled up with this? God's always providing the way of escape for us, isn't he? In some way, shape, or form when you're tempted. So you're on the computer, and it's late at night in your hotel room, and you're feeling alone and depressed and just about to click that mouse on that site you know you're not supposed to be on. And then all of a sudden, for a split second, the power blinks on and off. Bing! Way of escape, God's getting your attention. So you're seriously thinking about swallowing those pills. And just at the moment that you're about the weakest, the phone rings and it's a telemarketer. Bing, God's providing the way of escape. And you're parked in the car with your boyfriend and it's late and he's persistent and you're weak, you're feeling weak. What's that? Car headlights behind you? And you remember what you read in your devotions that morning about purity. Bingo. God's providing the way of escape. And I could go on and on and on and on about these things. What do you do with those things when they happen to you? Biblical scholar Charles Ryrie says that Satan's purpose in the temptation was to thwart God's plan for our redemption when he tempted Christ by making Christ sin, thus disqualifying him as the Savior. God's purpose in all of this, however, was to prove that Christ was the perfect, sinless, and worthy Savior. He passed that test. But he knows the dilemmas we face because he was tempted as we are, the Scripture says. Amen? Hebrews chapter 2, verses 17 and 18 says, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation or to atone for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. He knows how you feel. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 15 and 16 say virtually the same thing. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find help in our time of need. You always have an escape 
in the midst of temptation. Because Jesus knows how you feel, and he knows what you and I are going through, and the door is always open to go to him, and he will provide the mercy and the grace we need in the time of need. Now, you may also have had the question, if God doesn't tempt us, why are we taught by Jesus to pray to the Father, lead us not into temptation? That's the one somebody brought up to me last week. That's a great question. There's no denying that we need that prayer. And interpreting this petition as Jesus gives it is difficult to say the least. But here's the quick answer, okay? It's not that God tempts us again. James says that's impossible. What we're really asking for in the prayer is God's protection. It's not a prayer necessarily to be be preserved from the temptation, but to be preserved in the temptations which will inevitably come. Think now of Luke chapter 22 when Jesus says to Simon, 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 Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat. But Jesus says, I've prayed for you. I've already prayed for you. And when you get through that temptation and you, are, and, and you come through it, because of my prayer for you, basically, go and strengthen your brothers. I once read a good line printed on a T-shirt that kind of pinpoints this request in the Lord's Prayer. Lead me not into temptation, Lord, because I can find it pretty good myself. The fact is, we flirt with it, don't we? We play with it and put ourselves in positions we know we shouldn't be in. And the actual implication of the original language here in the Lord's Prayer seems to be that we are asking God not to allow us to be overwhelmed by temptation to the point that we are snared by the evil one. In essence, it's praying, O Lord, hold us back and do not let us take that path. Deliver us from the evil one. But if we're stupid enough to walk up to the devil and expose to him our weakest spot, then why bother to pray for that deliverance? See, the phrase is really an expression of confidence. It's confidence in our Father as we pray to him daily, Lord, we trust you to guide us because you alone know the way that we must go. Don't allow our feet to slip. That's basically what we're praying. So all of those things are questions. But there's one more looming question about James's statement that really is bothersome to me and probably to some of you. And it's all the way back in the Old Testament in 1 Kings chapter 22. Now, to be fair... This deserves a whole sermon on its own. But I'm just going to uh, just give you it in a nutshell. You're just going to have to study it on your own if you don't believe what I'm saying this morning, okay? 1 Kings 22 sets up this scene in which the prophet Micaiah is speaking to Ahab. Evil guy. Evil guy. And in verse 19, see... Evil King Ahab is about to go to war, and he's got all these prophets around him telling him, yeah, go up, go up to the war. You're going you're gonna to defeat them. But they're all false prophets. Micaiah is the only one that speaks the truth. 
And this is what he says in verse 19. Micaiah says, Therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the host of heaven standing by him on his right and on his left. And the Lord said, Who will entice Ahab to go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? And one, and one said this while the other said that. And then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord and said, I will entice him. And the Lord said to him, How? And he said, I will go out and be a deceiving spirit in the mouth of all of his prophets. And then he said, you are to entice him and also prevail. Go and do so. Now, therefore, behold, the Lord has put a deceiving spirit in the mouth of all of these, your prophets, and the Lord has proclaimed disaster against you. Then Zedekiah, the son of Chaniah, uh, uh, Kenea, ah, well, however you pronounce that, Kenea, forget it, just forget it, <laughs> came near and struck Micaiah on the cheek and said, how did the spirit of the Lord pass from me to speak to you? And Micaiah said, behold, you shall see on that day when you enter into the inner room to hide yourself. And then the king of Israel says, take Micaiah, return him to the Amon, the governor of that city, and to Joash, the king's son. Put him, in, put him in prison, feed him sparingly until I return safely. And Micaiah said, if you indeed return safely, the Lord has not spoken by me. And he said, listen, all of you people. So here we have this scenario where it seems like God is soliciting evil spirits to deceive Ahab. Sounds like temptation to me. How are we going to answer this one? Well, Here's my take. Take quick notes. Continuing the example of his father, in the example of his father, Ahab did evil in the sight of God by worshiping Baal and did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel than all the kings of Israel that were before him. That's what it says in 1 Kings chapter 16 and verse 33. Ahab, again, if you read about Ahab, again and again and again and again, proved that he was bent on doing evil. Evidenced by his continued refusal to listen to the prophet Elijah's warnings in many subsequent incidents. God again showed his power and his mercy to Ahab, but the king consequently refused to submit and obey him. Micaiah in this case, was brought before the kings and delivered the king and delivered God's final warning to Ahab. He said that if they went to war, they would be defeated and left without a king. Ahab was again rejecting the clear warning from God and choosing a path of wicked rebellion of his own free will. In response to Ahab's constant choice of sin, God revealed some of the inner workings of the spiritual realm. God had already pronounced a death sentence on King Ahab. If you look at 1 Kings chapter 20 and verse 42 and also chapter 21 and verse 19, you see that. It's already been sealed. God had already pronounced the death sentence. But God had given him the opportunity to repent of his wickedness time and time again. God then chose to use a lying spirit because Ahab rejected God's rebukes and warnings all through his life and the cup of God's wrath was now full. 
This was God's judgment upon Ahab. This was not a temptation to do evil. Now, here's the main point. God maintained full disclosure of the truth of what was happening through the prophet Micaiah. Ahab sinned knowingly and willingly. He wasn't deceived. He knew what the truth was. Micaiah told him what the truth was. Ahab's heart was set towards evil. Look at chapter 21 and verse 20. Chapter 21 and verse 20. Ahab said to Elijah, have you found me, O my enemy? And he answered, I have found you because you have sold yourself to do evil in the sight of the Lord. Behold, verse 21, I will bring evil upon you and will utterly sweep you away and will cut off from Ahab every male, both bond and free, in Israel. And the curse was given. Verse 25, surely there was no one like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the sight of the Lord because Jezebel, his wife, incited him. And he acted very abominably in following idols according to all that the Amorites had done whom the Lord cast out before the sons of Israel. Here's the deal. Ahab had sold his soul to the devil, basically. God gave him chance after chance after chance. Ahab got to a place where now he was sealed in his sin. God finally gave him over to his own evil heart. And that's a place no one wants to be. So let me ask you a question this morning. Are you in danger of being in that place? Because the New Testament gives us some pretty clear warnings about that. Turn to Romans chapter 1. And Romans chapter 1 is really kind of the guiding scriptures about explaining 1 Kings 22 here. I don't need to read the whole passage to you, but if you go home and study it in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 31, it tells us very clearly that the wrath of God here is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. God is constantly giving witness of himself, of himself and the truth to people. Verse 21, that even though they knew God, they didn't honor him as God. They became foolish in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. Verse 24, therefore God gave them over. Verse 20, to the lust of their hearts. Verse 25, for they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Verse 26, for this reason God gave them over. In verse 28, and just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind. You don't want to ever get to that place. Ever. There's more. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 deals with this as well. Talking about toward the end, the end of days on the earth. In verse 8, 
Chapter 2, 2 Thessalonians, Paul writes, Then that lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end the appearance of his coming. That is, the one whose coming is in accordance with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders, and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish. Why? Because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. And for this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. You see the explanation there? You can go so far, my friends, of rejecting the truth that God finally gives you over to your desires. 2 Timothy chapter 4. This is the last one, and we'll move on. 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verses 3 and 4. Paul says, For the time's going to come when people will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and will turn aside to myths. But you be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. That's what I'm doing because this is my call. I'm telling you the truth. You can get to a point where God might give you over. And you don't know where that time is, where that point is. So let me ask you again, how long have you heard the truth of the gospel and still continue to turn away from it? That's a dangerous place to be. See, in the case of Ahab, God chose to use a lying spirit to accomplish his perfect and righteous plan. The lying spirit will receive its punishment just as Ahab did, and those who repent of their sins will receive forgiveness just as Ahab could have. The real question is, will you respond to God's warning with faith and obedience, or will you reject his counsel and be rejected by him. Very, very serious place to be. Now, this is truly faith on the front line, isn't it, that James is dealing with? So the question is, does God really tempt people to sin? Well, the answer is a resounding no, but he does bring judgment on those who decide to continue in their own deception. Because of what he is and who he is, he never solicits anyone to sin, only to succeed. And what James says here is that God is not the source of temptations. Man is the source, and we saw that last week. Make no mistake about it, God's not the source of your temptations. You are, and I am. It's personal. It's a personal responsibility. Which brings us to the second point we saw last week. We need to recognize the sequence in which these temptations occur. Verse 14, each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. And when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. So, the sequence of sin always leads to death, James says. Number one, temptation begins when we're lured by lust. We're carried away. As I quoted one pastor last week, it's always an inside job, isn't it? Number two, lust then breeds the the snare of sin. Now, you know, remember that temptation is not sin, but sin is conceived and becomes alive 
when that seed of our desires is fertilized by our conscious choice and we indulge those desires. And I said last time that that danger zone for all of us is the intersection between desire and opportunity. Remember that? Desire and opportunity, where those two things come together, that's the danger zone. And so in order to avoid letting temptation become sin, Scripture tells us a couple of things, two things you can really remember. Number one, deny worldly lusts, as Titus says. Secondly, flee from youthful lusts, says Timothy. So remember these two words whenever you're tempted. Deny and depart. Say it. Deny and depart. Very easy to remember, hard to do. In other words, put distance between your desire and the opportunity to sin. Why? Because sin brings forth the destruction of death. It always does. And we saw numerous examples of that last week. Adam and Eve, Achan, David. It all gave us a picture of how the sequence of sin works, right? We see, we desire, we act, and then we try to hide it. And you know what happens? You cannot hide it. Your sin will find you out. And you know what else you can't hide from? You cannot hide from the result of sin, which is death. Appointment in Samara was published in 1934. It was the first novel by American writer John O'Hara. It concerns the self-destruction and suicide of a fictional character, Julian English, a wealthy car dealer who was once a member of the social elite of a town called Gibbsville. This novel describes how over the course of three days, this Julian English destroys himself with a series of three impulsive acts, culminating in his own death by suicide. The title, Appointment in Samara, which is intriguing to me, is actually a reference to the retelling of an ancient Mesopotamian tale which makes the point of what James is saying here. Here's the tale. A merchant in Baghdad sends his servant to the marketplace to get provisions. Soon afterward, the servant comes home white as a ghost and trembling. The servant tells the merchant that in the marketplace, he was jostled by a woman whom he recognized as death. And she made a threatening gesture toward him. Borrowing the merchant's horse, the servant flees at great speed to a place called Samara, a distance of about 75 miles away, where he believes death would not find him. The merchant then goes to the marketplace and finds death. And he asks why she made the threatening gesture to his servant, to which death replies, quote, That was not a threatening gesture. It was only a startledness of surprise. I was astonished to see him in Baghdad, for I had an appointment with him tonight in Samara. What's the point? Sin will eventually bring about death in one form or another, and death will always find you. If you think you can handle whatever temptation you're indulging in now, you need to know that in the end, it's going to bring forth death, says James. Death to your spirit, death to your relationships, death to your joy, death to the peace to your soul. In some way, you will die. So James says, stop 
allowing yourselves to be deceived. Verse 16, do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. And verse 16 here is a warning that points us in two different directions. Don't be deceived, my beloved brethren, he says, and he points back. Don't be suspicious of God's character. Don't be deceived. God's not trying to entrap you. But he also points forward to verses 17 and 18, and he says, don't be blind to God's goodness. God's not holding back anything from you. See, Satan would have us to believe that we're in such desperation when we're stuck in our cycle of sin and temptation and sin and death that there's no way out, but there is a way out, and that's where we ended last time. I'll tell you, that's the lie that James is combating here. There is an antidote to the problem of the cycle of temptation and sin. And here it is, verse 17 and 18, every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of his truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. Folks, God is not holding back anything from us. He's not holding back anything from you. Instead, he has given us everything. Peter was very clear on that. Second Peter, turn to Second Peter chapter 1 for a moment. Let me show you that. Second Peter chapter 1. Look at verse 2, beginning there. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Now, remember who's writing these words, okay? Who is it? Peter. What happened to Peter? Got sifted like wheat, right? But Jesus prayed for him, and he was restored. Just the opposite of what happened to Judas, right? Peter denied his Savior, but he didn't let that lead it to death because... He followed what Jesus wanted him to follow. And Jesus had prayed for him, and he now was returned. And he's writing this. And he says, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us, say it, everything, all, pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. There's our way of escape. In the realm of temptation, this is the most important thing to recognize. Even if we recognize the source from which temptations come and originate, and we recognize the sequence in which they occur, we're still helpless unless we recognize one more thing, the salvation by which temptations are overcome. And that's verses 17 and 18. And that salvation is the gracious gift of God. Verse 17. So, the point is, let him reframe your thoughts because the source of good is always God. 
The source of good is always God. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. God is pictured here as the giver of every good gift. James says that everything which is good, every gift which is perfect is from above. That's the same term that John used in his gospel in John chapter 3, verse 3, which says that we're not going to see the kingdom of God unless we are born from above. Every good and perfect gift, the gift of salvation, comes down from above. God doesn't tempt men to sin. In fact, he's graciously pouring out for our benefit an unending shower of gifts which are completely sufficient to meet our needs, and the epitome of that is salvation in Christ. Is that right? The giver of these gifts is also the creator of all the universe, the sun and the moon and the stars, and James refers to it here. He is the father of lights. What a contrast to the previous section in James. While sin and death are the wages of darkness, he says, salvation and life come as gifts from the father of lights. The source of good is always God. And this giver of these good gifts, by the way, never changes either. Though the light of the stars and the moon and the sun are in flux and they are constantly changing, our God, who is the true light, never, ever flickers. Never flickers. 1 John chapter 1, verse 5 says this, God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. Amen? A sundial marks the shadow that is cast by the turning earth, right? God, however, is not like that, James says. There is no shadow from his turning. He never turns away, for his light is constant and it's unchanging. The light of his holiness, which is never eclipsed, could not allow the possibility of him being one who lures men into, into temptation. So James says he's not like that. Shadows that darken our outlook come from an earthly source, and when we let anything get between us and the source of light, we walk in the shadows. But if there are shadows in your life, it's because you've turned your back on God and his light, not the other way around. How can you turn away from such a glorious and gracious illumination? So James says, reframe your thoughts. The source of good is always God, but only, not only is this salvation a gracious gift from God, but it's also the glorious goal of God for you. So James says, let him reform your life. And he says, as children of God, they are born of truth. Verse 18, in the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. You see, sin brings forth death, James says, but salvation brings forth life. Romans 6, 23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Again, verse 18. Look at, look at the terminology here. Read it. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth 
so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. God willed not to let us die in sin. Let me say that again. God willed not to let us die in sin. It was of his own choice, it says in James, in the exercise of his will. Is that right? No outside element forced him to make that choice. He not only willed it, but he also accomplished it. James says, he brought us forth. That fact is pretty inconsistent with any claim that anybody would have that God would tempt us to sin. Brought forth is precisely the same phrase that is used at the end of verse 15 that talks about sin bringing forth death. But note the graphic contrast that James is setting up. This horrendous birth spoken of in verse 15 was of sin and death. But here in verse 18, it signifies new birth. Brought forth from above. Born from above. Born of God. And how does one get born of God? How does one get brought forth? How does it all take place? How are we we reborn? What's it say here in James? He brought us forth how? By the what? Word of truth. By the word of truth, by believing the message of the gospel of truth, the gospel of grace, the gospel of Jesus Christ. We were brought forth by Jesus who is the word of truth, which embodies God's truth. The person and work of Jesus Christ, John chapter 5, verse 24, says, Truly I say to you, truly, truly I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life, and he does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. Isn't that great? 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 13 says this. says, for this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God that you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. When this message of the gospel of Jesus Christ is proclaimed faithfully, and by the way, it is good news. It's not just good advice. It's good news. It brings life to those who receive it and believe it. Abundant life. James actually leaks a tiny preview of what he's about to say to us in the next section, which we're going to go over next week. Look at James 1, 21, verse 21. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility, receive the word implanted which is able to save your souls. Isn't that a great verse? Receive it in humility. The word implanted. Why? Because it's able to save your souls. You get that? able to save your soul. Look at the person next to you in the eyes and repeat these words. The word implanted is able to save your soul. 
Now look at me and say these words. The word implanted is able to save my soul. Amen. There is no substitute for the powerful proclamation of the truth of the gospel. That Jesus came. He lived a sinless life. And that he was crucified for our sins and that he died and on the third day rose again from the dead and that he appeared to many. Matter of fact, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 said that he appeared to James, singled him out. So faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ, Romans says. Romans 10, 17 says. So what's the goal of God's work in salvation? That we might be, as it were, the first fruits among his creatures. He wants you. He wants you to be one of his. In the Old Testament, in Leviticus 23, the first fruits were the initial pledge of the full harvest which was dedicated to God. It all belonged to him. We belong to him if we're Christ's completely, amen? There is not one ounce, not one inch of you that does not belong to God, that he does not own if you truly are a Christian. The question comes as to whether or not we believe it and act like it. Because he bought you. And the price, my friends, was high. And the sooner you acknowledge that, the more at peace your soul will be. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 17 says, If you address the Father as Father, the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on the earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers. No, but you were purchased with precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you. For the sake of you. Great passage. Verse 23 of that same passage says this, For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable, that is, through the living and enduring word of God. This is what James says. For all flesh is like grass and all of its glory like the flower of grass and the grass withers and the flower falls off but the word of the Lord endures forever. Forever. You understand that your soul's going to endure forever? Bill Hybels, the pastor of Willow Creek Community Church, was studying the Bible for a sermon in a restaurant one time. And a young woman looked over and asked, What do you read? Why are you reading that? Meaning his Bible. 
Bill looked back and said, this is an exact quote, because I don't feel like going to hell when I die. (laughs) Bill has a little problem expressing himself assertively sometimes. She retorted, there is no such thing as heaven and hell. Bill thought, this is going to be interesting. He turned and he says, why do you say that? She said, everybody knows that when you die, your candle goes out, poof. So he says, you mean to tell me there's no afterlife? No. So that means you must be able to live just as you please. That's right. Like there's no judgment day or anything. The girl says, right. Bill continued, well, that's fascinating to me. Where did you hear that? She said, I read it somewhere. Can you give me the name of the book? I don't recall. Can you give me the name of the author of the book? I forgot his name. Did that author write any other books? I don't know. He says, is it possible that your author changed his mind two years after he wrote that particular book that you read and then wrote another one that said there is a heaven and a hell? Is that possible? I'd love to have been there listening to this conversation. It's possible, she said, but not likely. Bill said, all right, let me get this straight. You're rolling the dice on your eternity predicated on what someone you don't even know wrote in a book you can't even recall the title of. Have I got that straight? She looked back and she said, that's right. Bill summarized, you know what I think, my friend? This is where it gets good. He says, I think you have merely created a belief that guarantees the continuation of your unencumbered lifestyle. I think you made it up because it is very discomforting to think of heaven. It's very discomforting thought to think of a hell. It is very unnerving to face a holy God in the day of reckoning. I think you made it all up. Conversation got real interesting after that. But listen, God has put eternity into your heart, into every person's heart according to Ecclesiastes 3.11. Every one of us has these moments when we hear it. A little bit. Have you heard it today? What are you going to do with that? Are you going to be like Ahab and risk the hardening of your heart to the point that God finally gives you over to believe the lies of the world? He doesn't want to do that. Scripture says clearly, today if you would hear his voice, do not harden your heart. God did not plant death in the human heart. Let me say that again. God did not plant death in the human heart. Ecclesiastes says that he placed eternity. He has set eternity in the human heart. And through belief in Christ, he breathes eternal life into it. Amen? We were made for an eternal existence with God. And we know it instinctively, don't we? We know life doesn't end at the grave. John Ordberg wrote, and I thought of this. Yesterday I spent quite a long time, my wife and I, with my 
son and his wife, my youngest son and his wife, who just had their first child. She's only a few weeks old, Nora. She's beautiful. And I walked around holding her and rocking her for about two hours. As I was looking at her beautiful face, reminded me of this, something John Ortberg wrote. He said, when our first child was born, the very first moment of her life, I took her from her mom and I held her in my arms. Something happened that I did not expect and I had never experienced before. It was like I could see the whole span of life in an instant. I said to Nancy, you see this little strand of red hair on her head? It's going to turn gray someday and then white. This soft, rosy skin, it'll get wrinkled and mottled. This pliable little body will grow bent with age. She's going to grow old and then we'll die and we'll be gone. And then she'll die and she'll be gone. His wife Nancy says, let me hold that baby. You're going to creep her out. (laughs) Listen, here's the point. God did not plant death in the human heart. Death came because of sin. That includes my sin and your sin. Human self-sufficiency can't get us out of this one, right? If I don't have a hope that's eternal, if you don't have a hope that is eternal... We don't have any real hope at all, do we? But as James testifies, God made a way. God made a way. And Glenn opened with it this morning. I'm so thankful he did because now I'm going to close with the same exact thing. For God so loved the world. God so loved you that he gave his only begotten son that whoever will believe in him would not ever perish but have eternal life. It's there for the taking. Let's pray. God, I pray that we would get in touch with the eternity that you've set in our soul. I pray that if there's anyone within earshot of this message that does not know the love and the grace and the power of salvation of Jesus Christ, that they would take these words to heart, that God has not set death in us. He set life in us, and sin brought death, and we can have that sin dealt with by receiving, by faith, the gift of salvation in Jesus Christ, who died in our place and rose again on our behalf so that we might have life as well and be the first fruits of his creatures. God, let no one leave this place this morning, I pray, without praying that prayer. Lord, Jesus, come into my heart and my soul. Take my life, Lord, and let it be consecrated to you. I surrender all. Be my Lord and Savior, Lord, today. For I am your humble servant. Lord, let no one leave without having that reality be made real to them. For I ask it in the precious name of your son, Jesus, who poured out upon us his amazing Amazing love and amazing grace. Amen.